subject matter for this morning is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. What, a, what an expansive, ominous, glorious, beautiful thing that we anticipate as we look here in Isaiah chapter 6 and look and see that Isaiah, of course, goes before us in this. The Lord has given to him, uh, really drawn him into, into heaven here, not Unlike, I'm persuaded, the Apostle John has indicated in the book of Revelation. But in here, let's look at the the context of the passage. Let's consider this holiness of God, the holy God that we worship, the one who has come to us, the one who has given to us life. And let's let's consider the prophet Isaiah here. It says in verse 1, it was the year that King Uzziah died. seems fitting that we might consider that this isn't the first year of Jotham's reign, the one who would follow the son of Uzziah. Second Chronicles 26-22 indicates that it was Isaiah actually that wrote down the annals of apparently all 52 years of Uzziah's reign. And so you can imagine the administration such a long one of Uzziah, and we might consider the capacities and the leadership that Uzziah gave to the nation. Uzziah was a man who was mightily used of the Lord. He seemed to be one who was very organized. He seemed to be one that was very insightful. He seemed to be one who enjoyed uh, the sweet benefits uh, and goodness of the Lord. But what Isaiah is getting at here is while Uzziah reigned 52 years, a time of prosperous peace in which the nation enjoyed great manifestations of divine love, Isaiah recognizes that the riches of this goodness had no more effect upon it than the trouble through which it had passed before. Isaiah is marking for us that something very, very dramatic and important has occurred on this occasion of this year King Uzziah died. And you might recall that Uzziah died a leper. He took to himself the privileges of priest, went into the temple, into the place where he wasn't to be, and was struck immediately with leprosy to the end of his life. It is recorded in Scripture that Uzziah followed the Lord But it's also recorded in Scripture, of course, that unfortunately it didn't end well. Isaiah's uh, not... uh, The the real aspect of this passage certainly isn't the gloominess of Uzziah's reign, but nonetheless the marked situation that Isaiah is showing us here as he is drawn into this very, very important uh, situation as he is given a scene of heaven. It was this year that Isaiah, that Israel as a people were given up to hardness of heart. Isaiah is encountering the holiness of God, which brought a capacity to gain a true sense of reality, of the spiritual state of his own soul and that of those around him. So Isaiah was no stranger to the prosperous peace directed by God or to the stark troubles brought on by rank disobedience to God. But this, this year was different. 
this year was different. This, this year marked in his mind and written down for us was that which marked the, the giving over of the people to a hardness of heart. The year of Uzziah's death marked the downturn in the spiritual and political state of the nation from which it never recovered. And so what we have here really is a, a, a coming together of two things that we see really as a pattern over and over in Scripture. This idea that Isaiah is shown uh, the holiness of God and he's also brought to a recognition of his own spiritual state. This clarity isn't unlike that which Asaph records in Psalm 73. Asaph was absolutely flummoxed by what he saw around him. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw the giddiness of those who were turned against God. But in verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73, we have recorded, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. And so it wasn't unlike this for Isaiah here. The Bible says, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. I saw the Lord. This is not a dream. Isaiah was wide awake here. Isaiah is transported As he sees heaven, I saw. John records in John 12, 41, that this was the glory of Christ. The Apostle John says in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The glory of Christ. Sitting high and lifted up on the throne. Children, I pray that you can... Uh, somehow picture in your mind what it is that Isaiah is seeing here. Imagine, if you will, as Isaiah writes for us in this passage in Isaiah 6, what it is that he, that he is seeing here. He is seeing the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. But that's, that's not all. His train filled the temple. Now, this isn't the train like on the tracks behind us here, of course. It, it has to do with, with the glorious splendor of, of that which he's clothed with, his robe. And if you have ever been to some kind of, uh, or seen uh, perhaps some sort of amazing wedding, or maybe a royal wedding or something like that, you might notice that, that the, the robe of the bride often uh, has with it someone to assist her, to carry the rest of her dress. And, and that is a representation of the glory of a bride. And what we see here, of course, is that that is nothing but something that represents the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on His throne. Had you seen a royal wedding with a long flowing gown, you would have also noticed that there were other people there. In other words, the gown didn't fill the room. And the idea is that the larger the the gown, the more majestic and holy is the situation. And what we have here 
in Isaiah's, what it is that he sees is there is no room for anything but the majesty and the representation of the holiness of that one who is high and seated on the throne. The robe covers all of the ground. As a matter of fact, the only creatures there are the seraphim. And you may have noticed that this, uh, this magnificent creature, angelic being the seraphim, these are, there, are, there are in the Scriptures two mentions of the seraphim, and they are both in this passage of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, and Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 6. These creatures are not touching the ground. The robe is there. And they are flying and hovering. The seraphim hovered above the robe belonging to God which filled the temple. They have six wings. Two of their wings covered their faces. Two covered their feet as appropriate to the creature when in the presence of divine glory. You might recall what it is that God said to Moses as he approached the burning bush. What was it? This is holy ground. This is holy ground. Their feet were covered. Their faces were covered. Of course, they couldn't approach the glory of the Holy One. The creatures apparently formed two semicircles, two opposite choirs to worship the one who sat on the throne. Verse 6, excuse me, verse 3. The one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I want to introduce a musical term. Antiphony. Can you say that? Antiphony. The commentators are persuaded that what we have in heaven is no less than antiphony here. You've got the seraphim over here, and you've got the seraphim over here, and they are crying out to one another in this chorus, one and then another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the idea here. That what Isaiah is seeing uh, is that which represents the whole earth that ultimately, uh, and Isaiah certainly was part of this, as are we, is what we would see is that in the fulfillment of all things is that it will be true that the glory of God will fill the earth. And that's what he was seeing there. This was Isaiah's favorite name of God reflected here in this vision, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Antiphony is not a new idea. I would draw your attention to Psalm 24. would probably be worth it were you to turn there. 
does appear that this is intended for Antiphony. I draw your attention to verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then one portion of the choir says, Who is this King of glory? And in the drama that Antiphony brings and the recognition of the glory of God, the answer is, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Again, the question, who is this King of glory? It's not a rhetorical question. The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. You have first the question, and then the answer. The antiphony in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. Now let's think of this word, holy. Simplest definition of holy, as says R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, is probably something like separate. It comes from an ancient word to cut, or even a cut above something separate it out. Additionally, this idea of transcendent comes to mind. Holy other, supreme and absolute greatness. God is so far above us that He seems totally foreign to us. Often, the idea of holy is used as a moderating or a modifier for attributes of God. God's love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. Who is it that can make things holy? Not us. God. God can make things holy. Now, when I say I heard the seraphim in verse 4, he stood at the farthest possible distance from the one on the throne. Where was he? Well, verse 4 says the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Where is Isaiah? Perhaps some of you back row Baptists should take solace in Isaiah because he was at the very door of the temple as far away as he could get from this one that was high and holy and lifted up. I don't propose that you might be in the back for the same reason that Isaiah was. The doorposts trembled. The building itself was seized with reverential awe. In the blessed state of the display of the glory of the thrice holy God, nothing stands immovable in the presence of God. Not even inanimate objects. What is Isaiah saying here? It's, It's not inappropriate for us to consider the very threshold and the supports of a door are perhaps some of the most sturdy things in a building. 
one of the things that I say is saying is simply this. Nothing can stand immovable in the presence of the one alone who is immovable. The Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. It's as if he's also saying that, will you not bow before this one? And what Isaiah is saying is that, in fact, inanimate objects bow to this one. They are also not immovable in the presence of God. Haggai 2, 6, and 7 give us some insight here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. There is a shaking. There is a shaking that goes on in our own lives and it's not unassociated with this idea that Isaiah is bringing us to here. What will you hold on to? Do you consider yourself to be immovable? God has provided Himself is that to which we hold. It's not unassociated with the admonition to hold fast. The truth is, Everything is movable when compared to God. It's not necessarily a defect. Unstable things do fail. But the Lord Jesus said if people fail to worship God, then even the stones would cry out. It's the same idea that Isaiah is getting at here. Even the stones, even the inanimate objects of creation would worship this holy Lord of hosts. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At first overwhelmed with what he was seeing, Isaiah recovers his self-awareness, and then he's overwhelmed with his sinful creatureliness. The infinite distance between creator and creature is sufficient to prostrate oneself, but Isaiah knew himself to be a sinner from a nation of sinners who have sinned particularly in the area the seraphim have been faithful in using their lips. When we look at uh, these things that the Lord has given to us, lips, and we can see that their purpose is actually given in Scripture, And it is often the place where we fail the most egregiously. Our lips were designed for the purpose of praising God. Isaiah has just witnessed the seraphim praising God. And yet, he recognized that he was a man with unclean lips and that that was that thing that was most horrifying to him. And it is that place that atonement was brought and that he was forgiven. And that's the thing that a vision 
being in the presence of the appearance of God as Isaiah was, that he also was overwhelmed with his own creatureliness. R.C. Sproul brings up a study in his book, The Holiness of God, by a man named Rudolf Otto early in the 20th century. He did, interestingly enough, a study of holiness. And one of the things that he noticed that was associated with the recognition of being in the presence of the holiness of God was an overwhelming sense of creatureliness. An overwhelming sense of creatureliness. We would be well if we could capture that. Let's look at some other situations where the holiness of God is recognized. I would draw your attention to Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. This is at the end of the book of Job. The book of Job is a incredibly repetitive book. It deals with a subject over and over and over again. And I trust that it is a subject that is important to us as well. Job answered the Lord, Job 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Being in the presence of God has persuaded Job to understand that he has been wrong to consider his situation as unjust and uncharacteristic of God. His new divinely worked clarity has shown him that God's plans are beyond the reach of human comprehension, that they are in fact the glorious and wisely digested work of the, of the majestic and all-knowing King of the universe. And this is why the simplest adjudication of a matter is to obey the leading of the Lord in a childlike manner. Job didn't understand what he was seeing and what he was experiencing. And it was Job's proposition that he had God over a barrel, that somehow God was unjust. But when Job began to understand the holiness of this all-knowing, all-seeing, majestic, wise, and loving Heavenly Father, he had one response. I repent in dust and ashes. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. I would call your attention to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. 
Mark chapter 4, verse 35. A familiar passage. The scene is simple enough to understand. The disciples and the Lord Jesus are on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, that is the Lord Jesus, let us go across to the other side. Mind you, it is evening. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, the storms on the Sea of Galilee are nothing less than legendary. And many of the disciples, as you know, were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. No doubt they recognized the danger and the possibility for a real difficulty in going across at night. And the idea here is very simple, really. This is a very important passage of Scripture. And as the sea is kicking up, as the wind is blowing, as water is coming into the boat. They don't ask Jesus a question. They accuse Him of something. Do you not care that we're perishing? They're afraid, but not as terrified as they're about to be. You see, one of the things that this passage shows us is, yes, they were appropriately fearful of their lives as they entered into the storm, but it was what that followed that terrified them. The storm was one thing. But as they recognized they were in the presence of a holy God, they were absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? They could enter into the messianic work of the Lord Jesus. But His absolute holiness and power made them fearful. Just as fearful as Isaiah was as he backed up as far away as he could get to the threshold. Hold on to the doorpost perhaps and feel them tremble in the presence of a holy God. Peter had a similar reaction in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the Bible says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee. 
And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, there were many in Peter's day that were looking for Christ. They wanted to be healed. They wanted a meal. They wanted to be around the Master. There were many who desired to be with Christ. Were you a commercial fisherman like Peter was that day? Perhaps you would do what I might be inclined to do and not push away the Lord Jesus, but offer to him a contract to help me fish. Peter wasn't looking to get near Christ that day. Peter had an understanding of the holiness of Christ. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. As Peter encountered the deity of Christ, he was struck with his own creatureliness. come to the conclusion of this passage in verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Our holy God is a forgiving God, is he not? There is the terror of the Lord. Have you ever experienced the trauma of God's holiness? Have you ever experienced the trauma of God's holiness? Of what aspect of God's holiness were you most aware of this week? When you look into the mirror of God's holiness, what do you see? What do you learn about yourself and about God? There appears to be yet one response to 
a valid experience of God's holiness. That is, that creatures, those created beings, you and me, we're humble. That's humility. A recognition of our own sinfulness. What did Isaiah do? Did he languish there? No. No, he didn't. No, he received the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of God. And Isaiah fully entered into this very, very difficult work that God had given for him to do. Humility is not incompatible with the authoritative application of the Word of God. Even in the discipline of God's people. It is true. Sometimes people become stress paralyzed when contemplating the holiness of God and actually fail to follow Him and His directions. To claim to be more merciful or loving than God is by not, is by not carrying out biblical doctrines is an arrogant expression of the rejection of God and His Word. Isaiah had personally witnessed a strength in Uzziah which also led to the pride of Uzziah. Woody and I have been contemplating a recent book by J.I. Packer called Weakness is the Way, and we are persuaded that it is a faithful understanding. It is a reflection of one who has contemplated the holiness of God. What happens when we as individuals, when we as a people lay hold of this one who is high and holy and lifted up. We can be that people who delight ourselves in the fellowship of people who recognize their own weakness and lean more heavily into the sweet anticipation and power and help of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom we are united in our faith. That one who is high and holy and lifted up. He isn't terrorizing. He is no one to be giddy at our fear. But he would say the same as he did to Adam who fled. Who expressed an unbiblical fear. A biblical fear isn't to run away from God, but it's to run to him. So, may that be the story of our lives as we anticipate the holiness of God. May it be that we're renewed in the recognition of the rightness of our own humility that we cultivate day after day, but also that we not become paralyzed in following our Master. There is a thing, there is a thing called the fog of war. 
There is a thing that, that would be overwhelming to many of us were we to involve ourselves in the modern day combat. But we must keep our eye on Christ. He is leading the way. We have no reason to fear. We keep following the captain of our salvation. He will guide us and guard us. We can watch Him though the noise around us perhaps waxes and wanes. We have no reason to fear. We don't worship strength We bow before the Holy One of Israel. In His strength, we go forward.